Hey everyone, and thank you for checking out our new episode. Since it hadn't come up on a previous review before we get started on this new episode, we here at Scary Stuff just wanted to note up front that we stand in support of the current strike ongoing by the WGA, as well as SAG-AFTRA. And if you would like to help show your support for the ongoing strike efforts, you can do so by donating to the Entertainment Community Fund, which is an organization which is helping to support those who are out of work during the current work stoppages. Their site can be found at entertainmentcommunity.org, and then there is an option to donate in the upper right-hand corner. Thank you very much for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this review of The Amityville Horror on this new episode of Scary Stuff. And welcome to a very special housewarming episode of the Scary Stuff Podcast. This is Eric Dellinger, joined by co-host Jacob Jones Goldstein. Well, hello there. And wishing a very happy housewarming to co-host Nick Leamy. Thank you. This was a terrible choice for a housewarming movie. <laughs> <laughs> has the new house told you to get out yet? No, the new house has not told us to get out yet. But I'm just going to start this off. As everyone knows, this is a spoilerific podcast. Mm-hmm. So if you haven't seen it yet, you should probably go, you know, Maybe see it before you listen to us. But so I watched this with my wife, who had not seen it before. And so we're watching a movie about moving into a new home with children, with a guy who has my almost exact hairstyle right now. Yep. Similar beard fullness. I was going to comment on that. During a thunderstorm, and we have the same chandelier. So she just at one point goes, (laughs) wait, wait, wait. She starts, I can see her doing the math in her head. She looks at me and goes, Fuck you. (laughs) I was like, I promise (laughs) I am very warm and I have no interest in getting hold of an axe. I swear. (laughs) That's exactly what James Brolin would have said. (laughs) So it was, it was a fun experience. See, no, the way you break that combo is instead of getting a dog, because you know, the dog is the real hero of the movie. Oh, you get a, 10 pound 10 year old cat named bailey <laughs> and then it's a whole different thing <laughs> yeah because george got along so well with cats in this movie the cat scene in this is one of my favorite scenes <laughs> cat just shows up to be an asshole completely unrelated to the house <laughs> but yeah so yeah happy housewarming nick this is our little housewarming special for you i'm happy to have a house to warm it it's a goddamn miracle in the market right now. We got this house after four months of selling our previous house. And from everything I've heard, we are well ahead of the curve. <laughs> Most people are waiting six to 12 months. Much like the family in the film. Yes. <laughs> Only $80,000. Oh my God. The house pricing talk alone made me so angry. <laughs> that, yeah, I, I heard that and it was like, you mother. <laughs> Look, all, all I'm glad is that we could find a horror movie about a family moving into a new house and strange stuff happening. Because, you know, in this broad genre that we all love, where would we have ever found another movie like that? <laughs> it's very niche. It's it's a pretty barren subgenre. <laughs> I mean, I'm, we're recording this in the middle of the Chattanooga Film Fest. I was hoping something would come up that had it, and it fucking nothing. But... <laughs> I saw Trim Season, though. That was a lot of fun. So I'll, I'll throw that out there real quick. 
just because uh, it's our third year in a row attending it. Literally, as we're recording this, the virtual portion of the Chattanooga Film Fest is going on. And this is their first year doing it. They did a portion in person for the first time since since 2020 when pandemic started. But it's a fabulous film fest. We've had an absolute blast with it. What I was watching before we started recording was Gil Adler and A.L. Katz, the screenwriters of several episodes of Tales from the Crypt. Yay. Gil Adler was the director of Bordello of Blood. <laughs> they have a podcast called uh, How Not to Make a Movie, which I've listened to several episodes of. It's a really fun podcast. It's all about the making of Bordello of Blood. But Bordello of Blood was originally supposed to be a movie called Dead Easy, and it was a completely different script. They go in on their podcast, they go into what happened and why. But they just did for the Chattanooga Film Fest, they did a live reading of the original script for Dead Easy. So you got to hear them read the script that would have been, it would have been a decidedly different movie than Bordello of Blood. And they're also going to be part of it. It hasn't happened yet, but every year Dave Lawson, friend of the pod, he does a rustic films screenplay competition. And it's people come on and they pitch a script to them. And they do, usually they do PowerPoint presentations and whatnot, like they're trying to sell a script. They've got X amount of time. They get feedback, and then every year he picks someone as a winner and, and gives them notes. This year, Gil Adler and A.L. Katz are going to be working on that, too. So, yeah, all kinds of fun stuff. I mention that because even after the festival ends, the Chattanooga Film Fest, they just started up a Patreon, which we subscribe to, and they're going to be doing some sporadic events and, like, movie streams and stuff like that throughout the year. So if you're looking to support a really cool film festival in the off-season, go check them out. So it's patreon.com slash Chattanooga Film Festival. You know, we'll link to it, but they're awesome folks. So, yeah, that's an awesome film fest. But we're going to talk about a decidedly different movie <laughs> this time around. <laughs> Before we get to the movie, I just wanted to talk about something real quick. Absolutely. About a month ago, actually about two months ago, uh, one of my favorite musical artists, Jesse Mallon, who is one of the great New York rock and roll artists, who's been probably one of the top three most influential performers of my life he's somebody i've seen a bunch i've met him a bunch uh, last time i saw him was at a you know wonderful new york show where you know last time i talked to him he was inviting me to an after party and I, just a really lovely guy who's mm. you know gone out of his way to do you know he's done all kinds of charities all kinds of benefits you know anybody in need is help him and he recently suffered a something i didn't know exists which is a spinal stroke yeah uh which is rendered him unable to walk now now there's certainly hope it's it's inoperable but there's hope that he you know with enough time and effort he will be able to walk again and you know maybe eventually perform you know and if anybody can do it he's certainly that guy but in the meantime because like most performers and certainly you know the fact that most of you listening to this probably haven't heard too much about him because he doesn't play arenas and stuff he needs a little bit of help and there's a organization called Sweet Relief, which is S-W-E-E-T-R-E-L-I-E-F dot org, sweetrelief.org, slash Jesse Mallon Fund, J-E-S-S-E-M-A-L-I-N-F-U-N-D dot H-T-M-L if you want to get technical. We've linked to it on the, the Instagram and the uh, the Twitter. So certainly one of my inspirations and an all-around good guy and certainly somebody that, you know, when somebody who does so much to help others needs a little bit of help, you know, we, we always want to do what we can. So I, I just wanted to bring that up. I don't mean to bum everybody out, but uh, it is something that's that's near and dear to my heart. So I wanted to bring it up. And, you know, if you have a couple of bucks, maybe throw it Jesse's way. He'll certainly appreciate it. And, and we will, too. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, uh, I just wanted to bring that up. So uh, back to the uh, this movie. 
you're, you're welcome to bring up anything you want, but you got to transition <laughs> out of it too. So okay. yeah, no, no, no. Look, so all right. I can't believe you don't like this. Well, wait, he doesn't like this. Okay. <laughs> was, yeah. So, cause well, we I, haven't talked. All right. So yeah. So upfront spoiler warning, like Nick mentioned also, we haven't already talked about this, so I don't know what everyone's reactions to this are. So this is going to be interesting. Let me let me put it this way. We keep saying spoiler warning, but realistically, everybody has seen this. Even if you haven't seen it, you've seen it. Like, if you're listening to a horror podcast, you have in one way or another seen this film. <laughs> or, yes. You know, I mean, it's just the nature of the beast. I'll throw out, too, on the off chance you haven't, as of this recording, it's currently on Tubi, along with nearly every other amity film movie that is amity there are so many There's so much crap out there oh my god except amityville 2 Tubi doesn't have amityville 2 at the moment i had to rent that one but you know what else isn't streaming is conjuring 2 it's streaming for free that is not streaming for free no because i i know that because i was watching so small favors i think well <laughs> the conjuring movies are on hbo max or i guess just max yeah but not two the reason I bring it up is I wanted to rewatch because I watched it, you know, hated it. But I remember the beginning takes place yep, in, in Amityville. Amityville. It's it's a dramatization of their visit to the Amityville house. So I wanted to rewatch it before. And I, I didn't watch any, like, there's so much Amityville stuff. Like, I haven't seen the remake. I didn't watch that because I thought we might do it eventually. I know my brother loves it, for whatever that's worth. Not much to me, but other people. Amityville 3D is awesome. That one I liked. <laughs> yeah and, and eric you said to not watch amity 2 or read anything about it because we're gonna maybe watch it on our our horror uh weekend we might i got the amity <laughs> trilogy blu-ray set yeah <laughs> so i got all three but you you need to there's another movie you need to see before we see amityville 2 just to really give context for some of the stuff that happens in amityville 2 and why it is the way it is but we'll we'll we will get into that eventually, not this episode. You know, I keep hearing Jake talk, and I keep, it, like, I can almost feel the word derivative off the tip of his tongue. And like, this is the source! <laughs> well, no, no, I, no, and I understand that. And that's, but it's kind of, it's kind of the broader scope of what I imagine we're going to, you know, have some themes about tonight. It's, like, not too long ago, well, all right, longer than I care to admit at this point. But, you know, not, I didn't read it as a kid. Was the Earthsea, the first Ursula Le Guin Earthsea book? Yeah. When I read it, it didn't have much impact. I read it as an adult. And it didn't have much impact on me because it, like Nick just said, it felt a little bit derivative, but it wasn't. It's just, I had read all the stuff that came after it before it. So it loses some of its impact. And I kind of figured that might be the case with this film. Except in reality, I just don't think it's a very good film. <laughs> and we'll, we'll get into why. But before that, I wanted to toss something out. When we, we did our previous episode on Spookies, I had mentioned, uh, yeah, Spookies. Okay, sorry. <laughs> We're leaving that in. Even after having reviewed in. the movie, you still want to call it Creepies. You don't cut that. Well, it's because I usually get it wrong, so I had to remember, to wait, did I get it right on the first try? No, that's You've seen it now. There are no excuses. <laughs> you you haven't it. seen Creepies. I know you haven't because it's all spider-centric. Oh, my <laughs> God. <laughs> I sound like that dude with the skeleton puppet. Why must you always fail me? <laughs> ribs! Spare ribs! Best internet video ever. Fuck! <laughs> well, but the, that's why I paused because I got it right the first time and yes, my brain wouldn't let me believe. It. <laughs> probably the only reason I got it right, I've been re watching reels this week from a. a 
I guess they they might be TikToks. I watch them on Instagram from a, an account called Latinos Against Spooky Shit. I love him. Funny as hell. He's so great. I love him so much. But so the word spooky has been in my mind. Anyway, <laughs> point is, on our Spookies episode, I talked about how my father lived essentially there and you know worked in the building. I have a connection to this one too, because my parents both they weren't sure if it was seventy and seventy one or seventy one into seventy two. They lived on ocean avenue in amityville no shit wow and my father thinks that they lived maybe one door or two doors down <laughs> they didn't own the house they rented an upstairs apartment in a big house and i found a picture of the house i just couldn't find the address and all their old shit and the problem is if you go on google maps that whole fucking street is blurred out so I couldn't tell. If, uh. Like, I couldn't find it among the houses that weren't, but there's so many right around this the actual house that are blurred out. You know, like, I could see, like, a there's a chimney in this picture. I could see the chimney popping over. That could be it. My, my When I asked my father about it, he says, hey, for all I know, we lived in the house. I'm like, that's that's not true, because you lived there while the DeFeos did prior to the murder. Say, I was about to ask if it, the DeFeos, because I couldn't remember exactly how long the DeFeos were there. For, I think it said they moved in in 68. And then the murders were in 75. And my parents lived there in 70, between 70 and 72. It's actually a little bit harder to find the house these days because due to the unwanted fame of the book and the film, the owners actually ended up replacing the quote-unquote evil eyes windows with more regular rectangle-shaped ones. So it's less obvious. They also changed the address. But it's like you, you change it by like four. People aren't that stupid. But <laughs> <laughs> nonetheless. You know, you can't tell on, on Google, but I do know that they lived in the 100 block of Ocean Avenue. So somewhere, it obviously wasn't the house, but it was right there. And I think it was on the same side of the street, like three doors down based on these pictures. I can't verify. I, I can verify they lived there and I can verify they lived in that area and they knew of it. And, you know, they were shocked when they heard about the murders, uh, probably just as shocked when the Amityville horror came out later on, although to the best of my mom's remember, she had never seen it. But anyway, yeah. So I have a, a you know, a vague personal connection to this, which I, I thought was interesting. So I, I don't know what movies we can do next that my parents live nearby, but uh, they lived in Poughkeepsie. So the Poughkeepsie tapes is, Oh dear God. I was just thinking of the Poughkeepsie tapes <laughs> on, the, uh, on the agenda. Oh, oh dear God! Well, see, because because Nick basically picked this one. <laughs> that's what I think. So, so you're up. <laughs> so, no, nope. not for yeah. our next episode. Next episode is going to be should be something else if all goes as planned. But after that, the uh, they lived in Washington Square in New York, and there's got to be some horror movies set there. I just haven't found them. But anyway, I I just thought it was funny that you know, hey, let's just do horror movies set my parents' former neighbors. You know. Hey, you know, if you want you know, to do something New York-based, we can do Jason Takes Manhattan. You'll be furious. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that's a much bigger commitment. We can't do just like Jason, was it, 8? You know, yeah. 10? I don't remember. Yeah. Oh, trust me. Eight. When you watch Jason Takes Manhattan, there will be a, a tide, a river of vitriol from you that I'm just going to coast into the sunset, uh, like a big old Look, smile on my face. <laughs> if, if, if we do Jason Takes Manhattan as a solo thing and not part of a broader thing, we're doing a two-parter that episode because we're also doing it with the Muppets Take Manhattan. <laughs> we we, we will determine better. live on air who won. I, I know who won. It wasn't Jason. <laughs> just going to mention real quick, as I think both of you guys have seen Justified and you know the show on FX, and there's the Which is the coming one back. Line. 
apparently. It's come back for a miniseries, yeah. It's an adaptation, I think, of a different Elmore Leonard novel that they kind of reverse engineered it into a Raylan Givens story. If I, I haven't dug into it, but I'm going to watch it because it's going to be fun. Yeah, but for sure. There's the one scene in, I forget which episode it is, where Nick Searcy, Raylan's boss, has the line, says, you know, Raylan, if you run into an asshole one day, you ran into an asshole. If you run into assholes all day, you're the asshole. <laughs> and then so with Jake's parents, it's like, if you live on the same houses, a horrific haunting. You lived on the same mystery. If every place you've lived is the site of a horrific haunting, you're the ghost. <laughs> Frankly, ghosts would call and ask for donuts less than my parents. So, you know. <laughs> Unless it's some sort of donut ghost, which may or may not exist. That feels like... Uh, One can hope. Uh, our, our buddy Slimy Swamp Ghost could maybe... Uh, Trevor Henderson. Trevor could, Henderson. Uh, <laughs> draw us up a donut ghost. If I end up with a ghost, it shows up every so often. It's like, hey, got a glazed? I'm like, hey, welcome. Here you go. <laughs> I'm just going to throw this out there. If you've got a ghost, until you determine what this ghost is about, I would absolutely not ask it for a glazed donut. <laughs> I was I was offering, but I, I see your point. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, this one went off the rails fast. <laughs> hey, I was just curious if we were going to get through this episode without yelling at each other about obscure cartoons. I got a link to the wiki of animated cartoons from 1979 in case that shit comes up. Are they we real go cartoons and find or out which these ones fucking made-up Delaware bullshit that you guys watched? Not Delaware! God damn it, Jake! Dingbat the Dobie Dinosaur. Shut, shut the fuck up! <laughs> <laughs> I had a note to myself. I was like, you know, if this bit takes off, we need to partner with one of our artist friends to do a, a t-shirt <laughs> line of semi-obscure horror parody <laughs> shirts for Denver the Last Carnosaur and the Mighty Gorbots. <laughs> what, what, what was the, the, the goofy fucking made-up one you had last episode with the, the Prince uh, or the Michael Jackson theme song? Uh, Macron one. Macron, that's right. But speaking of stuff from our childhood, though, so that answers something I was curious about with Jake to start, because I was curious. I was like, all right, so this is this is a pretty big and you know well-known, obviously well-known event, the Amityville Haunting. And movie likewise is, you know, I hadn't seen it, but was certainly aware of it and certainly aware of it, it was very much a staple. And so I was curious who had seen this. And I was like, because I, I figured there was a decent chance Jake might have seen it growing up. To be fair, I thought I had. And there were definitely scenes I recognized. Hmm. But there were a lot more scenes I didn't recognize. So I think maybe I saw either watched it on like Saturday afternoon TV and they cut out a lot or very likely. I mean, I can tell you one scene they certainly fucking cut out that I I would have remembered. But yeah, I honestly I mean, the whole movie feels vaguely familiar, but that could also be because, again, as we mentioned, so many movies have followed this same path. And, you know, you, you see like you knew the story. You can't not know the story. So I may or may not have seen it. I definitely had seen the scene with the priest and the flies, and I had definitely seen at least part of the dog digging at the door and getting, you know, a little bit bloody doing it. Both very iconic. And like the car with the car roof flipping up, I remembered. Hmm. But beyond that, like the in-between, like I had no memory of the, the shit with, you know, the, the missing money and the brother. And like I said, I'd never had no memory of Margot's kidders showing up and they certainly would have been an impression on me. 
Nick, did you see this growing up? I really wish we were a video <laughs> podcast sometimes. I did see this growing up. I saw it probably younger than I should have, and I've always liked it. I've always enjoyed it. Um, I realize it's not overly flashy compared to modern standards. It, it's weird. It feels like they actively tried to be closer to the book than a cinematic experience. So it, you get certain certain tropes are missed, I feel, in the process. And so it feels a little bit more... Like pace. <laughs> yes. This is going to be an interesting discussion. <laughs> but, you know, also, like, I don't want to necessarily talk about it too much just yet, but, like, how things actually end is kind of very atypical, I think, from what you'd expect from a modern-day film. And for that reason, I kind of like it. But I also can see why it'd be off-putting. Hmm. Okay. It's funny you mentioned the ending because what I'll mention just real quick, and said so we won't we'll get into film proper here in a little bit. So I hadn't seen this, and this is a rare case where I had seen the remake, ah, but not the original with Ryan Reynolds. Yeah, normally when when something comes up like that, if it's something I'm interested in, normally I I get it's one of those things I'm randomly particular about. It's like yeah, if if I'm interested in, in the original, I usually want to see the original, then I'll watch the remake because I'm I'm fascinated by the adaptation process and so I, I like seeing the evolution of something how you update something for different time periods whatever but the amityville remake was one of those when it was coming out it was like it's platinum dudes fuck it i don't care because <laughs> i just wanted to see because everyone was at the time the hubbub was because this was not long after van wilder and it was the the hubbub was hey ryan reynolds is actually creepy in this and that's all critics i remember talking about was was that so i was like all right i'll, I'll see it for his performance and I don't remember much about it at all, except it, like in my head, I was like, doesn't he actually kill him at the end? So in my head, I, I thought like it, the family actually died because like the vague events I could remember what I was conflating in my head was at some point I must have heard of the DeFeo murders and knew that there was a family in there that all of them did get killed. So I was like, does it rhyme? So when I got to the ending of this one, I was like, oh, okay, I guess I'm really misremembering the remake then. I looked it up and yeah, sure. I think he kills the dog, I think, in the remake or something like that. I don't remember. Haven't seen the remake. so The remake know. is basically the first movie, but with hotter people. Uh, uh, for, the, for the most uh, part. I don't know uh, about that. <laughs> Once again, Margot Kidder is in the original. See, the funny thing is Jake and I are thinking of two different people right now. <laughs> Jake's made it very clear who he's talking about. But I'm sitting there thinking like, like, Josh Brolin, Ryan Reynolds. Just like, ah, just... <laughs> Not Josh Brolin, James Brolin. Sorry. Speaking of, I think this is the first time I've actually seen James Brolin in it. Not me. And so he certainly recognizes his, you know, the I'm, shape of his face from his kid. I'm fairly certain you guys have seen James Brolin in something else. I have, definitely have. So there's a chance you've seen him in the original Westworld. Not that I remember. So I did see Westworld, but it's been too long. But more likely, I'm guessing you guys saw him in Pee-wee's Great Adventure. <laughs> I don't remember him in it. I'm sure I, I know I saw Pee Wee's Big Adventure growing up, but it's been so long. I don't remember him at the very end of the film. You know, his story becomes, you know, popularized and they make a movie about it. And James Brolin plays Pee Wee in Pee Wee's Big Adventure in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> He's all debonair and decked out. <laughs> That's fabulous. Something else you might have seen him in was season four, episode five of Community cooperative escapism and familial relationships where he plays jeff winger's dad well, that was easy for you wasn't it William yep, yep. oh yeah no i knew this one coming in that we were this was a <laughs> slam dunk right here because james brolin one step 
success. <laughs> See, there you go. You must be happy about that, Nick. I, uh, I didn't even have to work for this one. No. I, I thought about saying, well, James Brolin was in it, but I'm going to find something else. But I didn't do it because I'm tired and cold. Because <laughs> fuck it. There, there is a route via Margot Kidder, but I just went the direct route this time. I did look briefly at, I, I didn't go through the, the whole cast IMDb. I, and I'm sure we'll go into cast and crew here in just a moment. But I did quickly look at his IMDb and because I hadn't really seen him in anything that I could think of off the top of my head. I was like, I want something else that he was in. And the main one that came up was folks talking about him being good in a movie called Night of the Juggler, which was a, I guess it was a direct-to-TV movie or direct-to-HBO movie, something like that, which I did watch. Oh, so Nick's seen it. Yeah, Nick, I'm sure. It's a lot growing. It was in 1980, so I'm sure it was a staple of, of the bourgeois households referring to rock money. I think what I need to do here now is I need to make us do a series of films, which I'm going to call Nick's Mercy. And it basically, it, it, it it's about how I give all these lowballs to Jake for community where I find the absolute worst fucking horror movies I can find where the leads are people from community. <laughs> we, we already done did that and you still complain about Born. <laughs> <laughs> that movie was so bad. Oh my God. <sighs> yeah. All right. So I don't want to think about Born. Nick, let's do the crew. Nick, crew rundown. Please save me. This is the Amityville Horror. <laughs> Released in 1979. Directed by Stuart Rosenberg, who yeah. also directed Cool Hand Luke, Question 7, and Voyage of the Damned. Written by Sander Stern, who did such movies as Pin, Fast Break, and Where Have All the People Gone? He also, apparently... Pin's on the list of movies I need to see. Apparently, he also directed Pin, but he also wrote and directed the fourth Amityville movie, Amityville Horror, The Evil Escapes. So I'm very curious about that one. I think that was the first TV one. That sounds right. It was Amityville 3D, which was in theaters, and I think Amityville 4 was the first TV one. I'll also mention real quick before you go on to the next crew member. I read the script for this or, or a draft of it. And according to the script, the front page of the script has, I didn't write down what date the draft is, but it notes, you know, Sandor Stern is the writer, but it notes someone did revisions and the revisions by credit is attributed to Alison Cross. And presumably she, you know, didn't write a sufficient amount to get credit for it. I, I don't know exactly the proportions that need to be done for the writer's guild for someone to get credit and someone not, but Alison Cross's name is on the draft of the script I read, which is, very close to the film you're not going to hear a ton of script readings from me because it's very very close so i'll mention if, if allison cross did indeed work on this film uh, around this time allison cross was doing a lot of tv movie work did a movie called anatomy of a seduction wrote the movie blood and wine which was a jack nicholson movie with bob rafelson who's the director of five easy pieces but was also is like still working in tv she's the co-executive producer of the and writer on the shows philly and swat and she was a consulting producer and writer on Rizzolian Isles and Queen of the South. So it was like, she's kept busy. So still like actively working in television as of a couple of years ago. So. Cool. I think it's neat that this was written by the same person who did Fast Break, which is a Gabe Kaplan basketball. I knew movie, you'd like that. I, I knew you'd like that. I was wondering about that. I haven't seen that, but. You know, I, I definitely saw that. That's the favorite basketball movie of a, a famous knucklehead basketball podcaster but uh i, I enjoyed it too it's oh it's okay so. I, I can guess who you're talking about this film was edited by robert brown who also edited such films oh wait you're at... skipping a writer 
George Lutz. Doesn't he have a crack? Ah, no, 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 no. <laughs> nope, nope, nope. <laughs> From such things as... <laughs> it may be his story, but it's not his movie. <laughs> he does have a writing credit, though, doesn't he? It just as, um, like, because they made the book. George Lutz did the book. Yeah, so, it's him, so and, get... uh, him and Jay Anson. Uh, yeah. uh, Jay Anson, yeah. who, who was all the other... As I think Jay Anson just says, <laughs> claimed to people. He's like, hey, I just wrote down what they told me. <laughs> yeah. so. Edited by Robert Brown, who's also known for working on Flatliners, hmm? Lost Boys, hmm? Damien, Omen 2, and The Beast Within. All right, yeah. <laughs> Those are all the ones I expected. Yeah. <laughs> It's a great list. Those are good movies. You skip Police Academy, but... <laughs> <laughs> Never seen Omen 2, but the other ones were good. I'll throw out the Robert Brown. Like, Rosenberg tend to work with a lot of people over and over. Like, I'm sure Lalo Schifrin's about to come up. But Robert Brown also edited the movies that Rosenberg did right after this. He did Pope of Greenwich Village. And uh, what was the one before that? Brubaker. Brubaker I haven't seen yet. Cinematography by Fred J. Camp who also worked on The Swarm, The Towering Inferno, Patton, and Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. <laughs> yep. Which, there is so way too much love in my heart for that film. <laughs> I've never seen it. I've always wanted to. Oh, we'll fix It's that. an experience. It's an experience. That and Silverado are always conflated in my head because they had comic book ads around the same time. Two very different films. Music by Lalo Schifrin. Mm-hmm. who also worked on Cool Hand Luke, The Exorcist, and Tales of Halloween. And Amityville 2, The Possession. Aha! Uh, which is... <laughs> yeah, Lalo Schifrin has a very varied career. A did Charlie Varick, which is one of my favorite movies. That movie might actually come up here in a little bit. Prime Cut, which is a Michael Ritchie film I like a lot, but worked with Rosenberg a lot. Did a TV movie with Rosenberg called A Small Rebellion. Then, like Nick mentioned, did Cool Hand Luke. Did a movie before this with Rosenberg called WUSA, which is one of the Paul Newman collaborations. That one I watched in the prep for this. Uh, Voyage of the Damned, Love and Bullets, which was the one right before this, and then Brubaker. But I mentioned that because my first thought watching this movie, there's a fair gap time-wise between this and The Exorcist. But there's a lot of elements of this movie which very much feel like in the shadow of The Exorcist, as I'm sure like everything that came after it for was affected by it. And part of that, too, was me sitting there watching this movie. And I like even through the opening credits, I was like 10 minutes in tops. And I was like, I wonder if Lalo Schifrin took his unused Exorcist score <laughs> and repurposed it for this movie at all. Because famously, for folks who haven't heard, Lalo Schifrin did a complete score for The Exorcist, which William Friedkin threw out. You can still hear part of it in the original trailer which I forget what the shorthand for it is, but I think of it as the photocopy trailer. It's the trailer that's nothing but the, you know, the, the black and white images of Reagan's face. So you can hear a sample of it there. But I was like, oh, I wonder if it was unused. And I guess he, it's been annoying him because if you look at the IMDb trivia, I guess it's come up for because like the very first one. Lalo Schifrin insists he did not repurpose his exorcist score for this movie. It was like, oh, okay. Well, that answers that. So I'm glad other people had the same thought at least. And it's I'm fascinated by the fact that they got him back for... Amityville 2, The Possession, because that is such a very different film tonally than this. His score is also different for that, but also, I would say, works much better. We'll talk about the score for this later. Sorry. The score for this is not particularly interesting, I thought. Uh, 
I mean, it's not bad, but it wasn't. It's more of atmosphere than music. Yeah, it's just funny because I guess part of me assumed that there'd be a more iconic theme for this because you know you, you know all these old horror themes, and it occurred to me I never really knew what the Amityville one was, and there just really isn't one that was made any imprint. The kids chanting stands out. That that the opening continues. theme, yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's about it, it though. But there's nothing like the Exorcist theme, or no, no, no. Uh, I don't know, you, Halloween. I, I think there's a very the distinctive. 13th. Theme in this because there's all the bits that sound very Bernard Herman where it goes into straight up psycho. Ring, 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 ring. Well, all right, there's a lot of that. But... <laughs> so there's a lot of like familiarity by proxy. It was like, oh, this went very Bernard Herman very quickly. But there's no, there's no like particularly distinct iconic theme from this. And I, I kind of, I just, I got I think I had in my head that there there's was no tubular bells like there is for The Exorcist, right? Which we'll get into as far as yeah, well, music's function in this film. Special effects by Del Rume, who also worked on Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Trancers 2, and <laughs> Satan's Princess. I went from, <laughs> wait, what's that last one? <laughs> <laughs> Satan's Princess? Satan's Princess. So, All right. he, he had, he had a, a, a range. <laughs> I think that's what my mom used to call gin. <laughs> <laughs> This movie was produced and distributed by American International Pictures, who also did so for Mad Max, Beach Blanket Bingo, Dressed <laughs> to Kill, The Vampire Lovers, The Last House on the Left, and Fritz the Cat. Wow. I, I didn't look up the, the year, but wasn't this... I know that this was, like, the most successful independent movie, like, in terms of return on investment, for a long, long time. I forget what dethroned it. I assume Blair Witch was probably what dethroned it but i don't know i'm just going like no there was something in between that was there so okay but either way i, I know that this was I, don't quote me on that but i kind of feel because i don't think blair witch dethroned this it was something else and then paranormal activity obliterated all that so yeah i know the gross sales for this after its release came out to about 170 million um which for inflation from 2021 would have been about 635 million dollars so Chew. it was up there yeah. And the budget was less than five at the time, apparently. So whew. it was low. It was so low, in fact, that James Brolin chose to take less money up front with the promise of 10% of the gross sales. Dude made a killing. <laughs> walked away with $17 million. Walked out on that one. Damn. Yep. Good for him. But speaking of the actors involved, so, you know, we talked about James Brolin. And, of course, Margot Kidder's in this, who you might know from the Superman series, 1, 2, 3, and 4. And Black Christmas! Yay! Which we did in nice. a previous episode here. Yeah, check out our episode where we talked to Ed Brisson about that. That's a fun episode. Uh, Rod Steiger, it, I've always enjoyed. He's a little over the top, but, but <laughs> I like his style. You can see him in like things like American Gothic, Mars Attacks, Modern Vampires, and The Illustrated Man, one of my favorites. <laughs> You're so he went for all his, all his genre stuff. <laughs> so like pawnbroker on the waterfront. <laughs> <laughs> fucking duck, you sucker, a.k.a. fistful of dynamite, which is <laughs> that's a problematic role of his in hindsight because it's brown face. But I do like the movie. <laughs> I stay on theme. I know you do. I know you do. <laughs> it's on the waterfront. <laughs> you know, this is just a random aside. Growing up, I guess it was either just a famous movie or one of my father's favorites was the pawnbroker. Yeah. And 
you don't you never hear about it now, but it was a big deal. And when my dad finally sat my brother and I down to watch it, you know, it's a great film. But I remember in the first two minutes going, "Oh, pawn broker." <laughs> <laughs> And I was a lot less excited to see it after that. Uh, <laughs> we'll just leave that to the reader's imagination here. But. I feel less bad about you confusing me saying Jem with Jim in the previous episode <laughs> now. I know I've got a proxy North Carolina accent, but come on. For years I thought it was the porn broker. <laughs> and I'm going to skip the other actors for the most part, except for uh, Helen Shaver. Uh-huh. She's well worth mentioning since she shows up in The Craft. Yes! Which we also for did an episode on. In The Craft, yep. yep. And she's also in Tremors 2 Aftershocks, Desert Hearts, and Land Before Time. Did I miss you doing Margot Kidder? Yeah. When I mentioned Superman and Black Christmas? I don't know where I was thinking. Oh, that's when I was looking up something else on the thing. Oh, yeah. But anyway. Awesome. Thank you for the rundown, Nick. My pleasure. Sorry, I just want to keep talking about Margot Kidder, because, you know, one of my favorites growing up. And still. Gotcha. Nick, are you actually swatting flies? Just one. I got it. Is it just one or just one for now? Can can we talk about how on brand that is for what we're talking about tonight? Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go check if your window unlocks, Nick. When you see like 20 of them behind me on the window, please warn me and then we will pause. (laughs) (laughs) I forget if I assume they redid that in the remake, but like I said, I don't remember. But it's when I got to that part in this movie. I was like, oh, this is that movie. <laughs> this is because I hadn't seen the scene, but I, I'd seen clips of it or knew of it, the scene with you know, the priest covered in all the flies. Oh, this is that movie. Okay. I, I will say I had conflated some scenes in Omen with this. Fair. Hmm. Fair. Some scenes in Omen do connect to this, actually. I think some of the sequels had a, a thing with locusts, if I remember correctly, not flies per se, but. Uh, Very similar imagery. Sequels. I just, a lot of the, some of the 70s horror, because I grew up, you know, I, we watched all this at some point or other when I was younger and, you know, terrified of horror movies. So a lot of them kind of run together. And that's why I can't remember if I've seen this. I know I've seen Omen. Okay. And we used to watch The Changeling all the time. But some of that stuff, because I haven't seen any of these in years, gets a little jumbled up in my head when I was thinking about it. Nick keeps grabbing flies, man. I can't believe this. <laughs> just the one! <laughs> My house is fine. Thank you. <laughs> Remind me to take screenshots like every like two minutes or something so we can run them back and watch them gather. During- That's what everybody says. And then the walls start bleeding, Nick. <laughs> you know, the, the one related thing I kept wanting to watch and I didn't watch was the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror episode where the house kills itself rather than live with the Simpsons. <laughs> for the Simpsons. What choice do I have? So, yeah, let's talk about the movie. So I, I will say... When the movie started, I got kind of excited because one of the first people you see is James Tolkien. Yeah. And I and I always like it when James Tolkien shows up and then he just doesn't. He's just standing there in like one shot and then that's that. <laughs> so I was a little disappointed by that. You know, he was in the Friends of Eddie Coyle. I didn't realize that because I haven't seen it, but that movie comes up a lot. So I'm going to have to sit down and watch it one of these days. You haven't, huh? <laughs> it's not even a popularity thing with that because I adore that fucking movie. But no, it's I know your brother loves that movie as much as I do. Yeah, he does. That's why I'm shocked you haven't seen it yet. So is it a spite refusal to watch it, or it just it, I, you know it just hasn't come up. It's come up on the pod. It hasn't come up that I was in a situation where Jerry said, "Hey, let's watch the Friends of Eddie Doyle," and I said, "No, go fuck yourself." That hasn't <laughs> happened. <laughs> it's gonna come up because I got to 
Mitchum hasn't been in a ton of horror adjacent stuff, but there is some. Obviously, Night of the Hunter is a huge one. If we, when we finally do Night of Hunter, I'll watch it then. Yes. So whenever we get, we will get to a Mitchum movie at some point because I got a list. Because I've never seen Night of the Hunter. Oh, well, we will fix that. I own that shit. But yeah, I got excited when he showed up, and then then he went away, and then you know they're they're walking through the house, and they're saying it's eighty thousand dollars, and I was just mad the rest of the film. <laughs> <laughs> I just bought the house. I'm mad. <laughs> house that size, $80,000. I'm prepared to live with some ghosts and flies. Yeah, I know, right? I, mean, I, I just am. All right, you get this room. We'll take these rooms. We'll make a line in the floor. We don't want to cross the line, okay? We'll just, <laughs> happy to bargain with you, buddy, you know? <laughs> It's funny, you're both homeowners, I'm not, but watching this going through, when I got to that bit, I was like, I wonder how Nick and Jake are going to react to the whole so $80,000 thing. Poorly weighing that against you know the the, the home's history even you know, later he's house. like yeah you know we got 80 for this it's worth easily 120 i'm like screw you <laughs> and then when she said eighty thousand dollars it might as well be eight hundred thousand i'm like no no it might not be because <laughs> those are might different will be right now that line was less absurd in in the script it's funny you mentioned that that line was eighty thousand it might as well be 180 and it's just, it was one of the dialogue tweets it was like no make it 800 so boost it up it's funny that that whole scene, James Brolin is so fucking mean to that realtor. <laughs> <laughs> He's not mean. He's mean. He's negotiating. <laughs> He's mean. Don't give her anything. <laughs> Take everything. <laughs> it's the thing where, you know, like, you know, wait, if you want to start a family. Oh, we have a family, bitch. You know, <laughs> <laughs> He's rattling her to get her off her game. It's still mean. <laughs> He's getting a house for $80,000. He better shut the fuck up and be nice to the realtor and buy her a glazed donut. <laughs> I love the the ending of that scene when they're they're leaving the house and the realtor's just saying, "Just just start moving. Just don't even they'll accept the offer. Just go ahead and start packing up. Take care of everything. Get your shit in this house. Just go. Now. Just go." <laughs> <laughs> like, you think we're gonna get it oh yeah <laughs> just, just start packing like i couldn't believe she started doing paperwork in there like you gotta know she knows it's like yeah. slightest breeze and she nope I'm out. <laughs> why'd you Jeez. start yeah well but they mentioned they mentioned that they knew there was a murder there don't they in that scene oh she's yes. aware yeah it, no, no, it no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah 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 everyone knows a murder happened there but clearly the realtor's like I've got to go. I got a thing. <laughs> oh, she, I, I assume the realtor wasn't Catholic because the house let her in. But <laughs> it's only if you're solidly devout, you know, <laughs> if if you're on the team. <laughs> no, I just think the house is a proddy, man. Decked out in orange paint. I, I do love the fact that if, if it's like if you're wearing any sort of Cossack or collar or, you know, if you're officially on you know, I run a church of some sort. The house is like, God damn it! And just goes right after them. Be too fair. Get out! I, you know, I'll give the house this one. When the priest comes in for the first time, he is trespassing. He's like, knock, knock. Anybody there? Nope. Well, I'm just going to come in, go upstairs, and, you know, start to do my thing. Nobody around. Doesn't matter. I'm trespassing. House might just add an alarm system, man. Those flies <laughs> just might have been trespassers. <laughs> Deploy the flies. <laughs> Yeah, if if you do a read on this movie of, you know, the house as being a manifestation of its occupants subconscious, 
it's <laughs> from a certain perspective, the house is like the best like wingman or buddy for George possible <laughs> because George is like, fuck a wife. God damn. You know, she's all Catholic or goddamn priest is coming by and the house like, I got you, buddy. <laughs> Get that motherfucker out of here. Our goddamn aunt's coming over. No problem. God got you, buddy. Our fucking brother's coming by. <laughs> oh, I'm going to rob that motherfucker blind. <laughs> now I got to pay the fucking caterer in the house. Like, hey, I'm fucking with a catering mob. <laughs> You're on your own there, buddy. Maybe maybe that's what happened. Maybe the house was on his side until that scene where he can't get his flight table in the upright position with Margot Kidder. And the house is like, look, if you can't do that, buddy, fuck you. We're done. It is interesting. So one of the things that's so fascinating about the film, again, coming into it, is that purportedly everything that happened in the house, as recounted by the Lutzes, it's so like scattershot. It's so buckshot where it's it's just kind of shit that's all over the map as far as, you know, venting, uh, fucking, you know, walls bleed, uh, pig demon. Uh, <laughs> and, and it's so it's not like this where everything happened in a very narrow you know, frame of kind of the kind of events, they really buried the kind of events. And, but it, it lends itself interestingly to, again, the house is sort of being this manifestation for everyone's unconscious and how it reacts to everyone differently, where, you know, I said, it, it, it seems like very much, it kind of siphons George's spirit, obviously, but obviously the, the way it acts out in a lot of ways seems to be again, kind of a manifestation of his insecurities as part of the relationship. And, you know, all of his unconscious ideas with, you know, with Amy, the whole Jody thing manifesting as, well, you know, she's getting picked on by her brothers all the time and ah, give her a friend. And then Kathy's whole thing. And an apology. I, I didn't go back and read the book and or yeah, I, know. I watched um, parts of some documentaries as far as some stuff. The last one I watched was I watched the Miamityville horror documentary, which is about. Oh, God, I'm blanking on his name. Thing Daniel Lutz, who was one of the 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 Lutz children and his recollections of it, which is also on Tubi at the moment. And so I'm, what I'm remembering mostly now is some of the stuff that he claims happened and that he claims George was responsible for that isn't obviously covered in this, but, but it, they mentioned too, like a Kathy's had this sense of peace in the house before disease. And you get a bit of that in this movie where when they first move in, it's helping her kind of reconnect with her youth. There's a sequence with the leg warmers, the sequence where she's in the painting, the Virgin Mary statue and listening to music which the script specifies for that bit. It was like, this is something she used to do that she didn't have time for, you know, when she was a single mother, but now it, it feels like she's reconnecting with a part of her younger self. Also the olfactory stuff with her, the fact that it's connected to her sense of smell. You know, the first thing she noticed is that it's all, you know, something smells off and, and she's always commenting early on with George about how she likes how he smells. So one of the interesting things, again, it's, can't tell if it's a byproduct of like deliberate like thematic we're going to connect these dots or is just everything is so fucking scattershot that it's just you just happen to land on these connections but that's neat yeah i i mean that's that's a good thought i my thinking was much less deep on this because it's like maybe the house wasn't haunted (laughs) maybe that scary ass raggedy end doll the kid had was haunted and they brought the ghost with them me whenever i approach haunted house movies i kind of personally see spirits as like feeding off the emotion of the inhabitants mm-hmm. and it's strong emotion so when they're extremely happy you can get some you know energy off of that so like helping her with her projects of youth and whatnot and of course you know being there for the kids and such but also unfortunately inevitably a very easy emotion to elicit out of people is fear and terror 
And so eventually ghosts fall back on that as a food source. And and not to mention, the more they eat, the more power they have, the more they can implement and affect incidences in existence, period. So the longer the family's there, the more it can do, the more it can manifest, the more that happens. It is scattershot, but I always kind of, I'm fine with that in haunted uh, house films. Because to me, it's like, oh, I've now unlocked another ability or another way to manifest. So I'm going to change it up as I go, as I become more powerful. So you're saying ghosts are basically Pac-Man? <laughs> <laughs> Arguably, yeah. Because that would be a reverse on the way that game is set up. <laughs> you eat enough ghosts, you become <laughs> So, you know, for me, you know, things like, you know, escalating, you know, makes sense. And also why it took so long. You know, arguably modern day films, it's like day three, everyone's fucking dead. You know, (laughs) it taking, you know, 18 days to a full month to like fully gear up. Honestly, makes more sense to me and and fits the theme better in my head. It's funny because it's one of those things that, you know, they talk about how, you know, the Lutz made it all up because, you know, they, they realized they couldn't afford the house. But this shit happens in the first month, man. They haven't even made a mortgage payment yet. Yep. <laughs> so that's what someone in one of the documentaries I watched. I forget which one, but uh, it claims they were like, yeah, they just couldn't afford the house. It's all they just got out. But but they were there so short, like, like, even if you can't afford it. I mean, <laughs> it was basically an extended vacation. Well, it came basically fully furnished, too. So. <laughs> Just like I want haunted ass uh, fucking Airbnb. Well, if you listen to also, there's this comes up in the Miami Horror documentary. Also, there's a far part documentary on MGM Plus. I apologize. I didn't write down the name. I watched the first two episodes of it where they dip into the allegedly George was interested in the occult, like in Miami of Horror. His son claims that allegedly George was like he walked in on him, you know, moving stuff with his mind in the garage. Like he was in there with like a group of his friends walked in and he was moving a wrench and he went and got his mom. And when his mom came in, it was he like could dodge a wrench. <laughs> but like and when the mom came and confronted him, like all the men stood up and left without saying anything. The MGM documentary, I forget who they're talking to, but they they're talking about George being interested in a wide variety of sort of fringe occult stuff but the, the main thing they mention like his gateway to the occult they're like well he was really into transcendental meditation and that got him into the occult and it was like you know the only person i know who practices transcendental meditation is david lynch and i just have a hard time picturing david lynch in his little basement with his big ass mug of coffee go, oh beelzebub <laughs> <laughs> I hope hell is nothing but blue sky, golden sunshine all along the way. So I was like, yeah, I don't think transcendental meditation is, is the gateway to, to Satanism. I, I don't think that's what David Lynch is peddling. I could be wrong, but yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's funny. Like, normally I like slow burn horror. This one, I mean, it, it's technically kind of slow burn, but I just... It, the, I didn't like the way this was edited together. I didn't like the way it did a lot of like the quick cuts to the, you know, the murder. Like, even like in the, in the early on, the scene with the, the shotgun real edits. Yeah. Yeah. The literal shotgun edits. Yeah. Yeah. Because they even found like they're in awkward spots. It's like, you know, oh, we're going to do a shotgun edit. Why? Because she's walking up the stairs. Well, it's supposed to be like where things happened. Like as they entered the moat, like the, you, this seems mundane to you, but this happened. It's a one-to-one with the room. Yeah. Yeah. But- well, except they do it like, you know, 
like one of the first prominent ones is they're walking up the stairs and they cut into one of the bedrooms. Yeah. And like, and I get, I get what they're going for with it. It just, for me, it was kind of annoying. And like the whole pacing of the film was just kind of annoying. I'll tell you what it felt like. And it's part of the reason I think it's such an enduring film and there's so much around it is because it's one of the really, really early cultural touch points for our fascination with true crime. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, significantly, you know, because the the DeFeo murders and that, and you've read about the DeFeo murders. That shit is bonkers. You know, even without the fucking Amityville stuff. Like, if you ever read the DeFeo's excuses and and that changed all the time. And the, yeah, and, you know, I was with my wife, but he wasn't married. You know, she was with somebody else. You know, their their uncle is a fucking mobster, and you know, I was afraid my dad was going to kill me. And then, oh, the wife did it. just, and it's just this this ever evolving thing. And it's like, well. It makes me think that even without this film, it'd be a pretty famous house and it'd be a pretty famous because, you know, there's like 87 podcasts that would be like, hey, let's do the DeFeo murders. And there, there probably are. And I'm not insulting other podcasts, obviously, but right, there right, are right. a lot of true crime podcasts that kind of take on murders like that and run the whole thing through. And it's a rich foreground, you know, but then you have so you have this interest in this true crime stuff that, that's, you know, in mass murders because it happened, you know, it's in the 70s. It's, you know, not too long after the Manson murders and you know, all this stuff in, you know, mm. Jonestown. So it's all part and parcel of that growing obsession as a country. And then you layer this on top of it, the book with the, you know, the paranormal, you know, supposedly true story. And you get this movie, you know, and people flocked it. But it's just I just don't think it's a very good movie. So you found it to be boring and the sluggish and just a bit of a slog. I say that because, like, one of the things I was curious about... Boring is, is not the right word. Okay. I, it's sluggish, and it's a bit of a slog. Like, it, I, I never found it boring. You feel it's messy. It's messy. It feels a bit thrown together. And the progression just didn't work for me. It, you have these good actors, but you don't really ask... It didn't feel like it asked a lot of... Like, James Rowland kind of started out mean, and it ended up mean. <laughs> so, like, the transition is a little bit... Like, it's not distinct enough a transition to really feel stark by the end of it, because it feels like he's talking to her just a little bit louder than he did the realtor in the beginning. You know, and there's the iconic scenes, you know, like with the, you know, the the flies and, I mean, the red pool and this thing isn't necessarily an iconic scene, but it's certainly a scene. And it, it none of it felt like enough of a punch in any of the scenes to really kind of work. The progression felt off. The performances were, you know, good performers, but not... Like they they weren't really asked to do much other than kind of, you know, float through the scenes a little bit. So I just, it felt very loose. It felt very cluttered and it just, it didn't work for me, but, but it's iconic in that it really, like you said, it's the forerunner. It's the one that started that genre of, you know, not necessarily started it, but certainly was the biggest and probably remains the biggest one of the family moves into house and scary ghosts. So, I, you know, there's a lot to recommend it to, but just sitting down and watching the movie, if you strip everything else that's fascinating culturally about it, and there is, it's a, I mean, it's a fucking fascinating everything about it. The movie itself just isn't that great, I thought. I, I from what you're saying, I think I can partially agree because I feel like what happened was you have this book and the Let's Family account and someone said, all right, I need to make a screenplay about this. And they really just kind of took choice moments, but didn't put enough time and effort into smoothing out the connections between them. So it really is almost like a scrapbook of the encounter there. It's like one of those recreations. 
Right. It's just like it's scenes of recreations, but you don't have, you know, fucking Rod Sterling in the middle of going in and later. Exactly. So I, I will admit that it is a bit jerky in that effect, that they just wanted to hit their main points and the story itself is a little bumpy. That being said, I do think they hit the atmosphere of it pretty solidly on the head. And I feel the overall tension and progression of emotion is well handled. And for that reason, I think, is why I really enjoy it. You know, because you feel, especially from George's perspective, like you can feel him falling apart. As time goes on. See, that's that's what I disagree with. Well, no, so much so that I'm actually a little jolted by the ending. Because he pulls his shit together way too soon and easily. Pretty, pretty easily. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, he's like, oh, I'm falling apart. I'm falling apart. Ah, things are bad. Let's get out of here. You know what I mean? So it's, it's, that, that is, I, I felt it was, it was a good progression till the end where he hit a wall and didn't go so well. But, you know. Yeah, I just... I just don't feel the progression very well. That that I mean, you know, maybe it's a me thing. It usually is. I just it felt you. You're not alone in in what I'll mention is like after I watched the movie, I went on to to Letterbox to mark it as watched, and it was one of those things in my head where it was like I, I remember this being like pretty popular. You know, obviously it's a staple. You know, it's been remade. And so and like in my head, I was I was expecting you know when you pull it up and there's everyone's you're friends with and you would see their ratings and I was expecting to see regardless of what I thought of the film, just by its reputation, I was expecting to see a lot of you know, like three and a halfs and up, you know, or fours and maybe some fives in there. And there's a lot of, I mean, it was, there's some really positive ones on there, but a lot in the middle and, the, and a smattering of the folks I follow were really low. And a lot of those folks said basically exactly what you said is, you know, the sentiment was it's really boring. It's not scary. James Brolin is a big dick from the beginning. So I didn't find it. <laughs> So that the basic sentiments you're expressing, yeah, that you're not an outlier in that respect. This feels like a banner day for me. I gotta say, <laughs> you want to call this early and just say, I might shit. I might just. I mean, you said whether or not I liked it. Fuck, we don't need to know that. <laughs> Tune in next week for <laughs> we have a very special guest coming up in the next episode. Well, did you like it? I, I did. I was pretty middle of the road on it, but I did overall like it more than I disliked it. Mm-hmm. Before I get into the kind of reacting to the, the points you guys brought up, I'll mention since you brought up the shotgun edits, you know, the opening scene where they're touring the house. I'll talk about this more in a second, but one of the things I think is the movie does is it ends up kind of shooting itself in the foot. To me, it felt like it shoots itself in the foot when it comes to the execution of the stairs where it does something and you're like, all right, I see how that was supposed to be scary, but there's something that happened that compromised it or it didn't just didn't end up having the intended effect with me. One of those is the shotgun sequence that we're in where they're touring the house. And like Nick mentioned, every time they go into a room, it plays what happened in that room. And, and not just them doing the bits where it's, I say shotgun, technically it wasn't a shotgun. It was like a hunting rifle or something. But anyway, yeah. not only is it the sound of the gun and the, you know, the, sh- images of these people being shot in their sleep but there's also like the like lalo schifrin score there so all of a sudden it's like the score suddenly comes in and the score suddenly drops out and they try and do a lot of that from going to you know loud noise to cacophony to silence and a lot of that and that sequence was one of those it was like i get what you're going for but it wasn't clicking for me and it was one of those it was 
I think they could have made it work. I would have stripped the score part of it out completely. You'll hear a lot of that from me. I think Lalo Schifrin is a fabulous composer and has done you know, some amazing work for you. He did Charlie Varick. I fucking love that movie. But, and I know I sound like a broken record with this because like so many horror movies we do on the pod, it was like, ah, too much music. But because it's, again, I always think less is more with that. But I, this movie, I really felt that too, where it's it like, I see what the, what the score is trying to do and how it's trying to complement what they're going for, but it's it's too excessive and it was too distracting. And it just felt like it was compromising the intended effect where it was like, I know what you're going for, but it feels like it would have worked better if you just stripped this out. I'll get more into that here probably in a little bit, but I mentioned the, the shotgun bits early on too, because there are two moments in this movie I had to pause it because of how hard I was laughing. And one of them was... <laughs> uh, there's, there's one for me. There's, one was the, the sequence with them being torn around. The reason was because I was like, like the fourth time they did it of the, you know, here's the bedroom, goosh, and you know, here's the kids' room, goosh. I was like, please tell me they keep this going. <laughs> For like George is getting ready to sneeze, he's like ah 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 goosh, and they keep <laughs> or when they have the the charbroiled hot dogs later, where's the ketchup? And he goes to smack the ketchup bottle on the bottom, <laughs> goosh, and just keeps. Please keep this going for the whole movie. The other one too, and I mentioned this to you before we recorded. We were waiting to come into the chat room, and I was I said, you got to give me a minute. I'm about to get to the scene where Aunt Helena pukes, and I can't skip this bit because. The scene of Aunt Helena, <laughs> so it's like Nick mentioned, every person who's a person of faith that comes into the house, the house has this very violent reaction to the point that they get nauseous. And like, Rod Steiger doesn't even make it into the car. And he's just like, Bruh! but Aunt Helena gets into the car and makes it a little ways down. And like the concept of her being sick, obviously, is a funny. It's She opens the door and the, <laughs> the noise she makes is... And you can't see her. She's obscured by the car door. So you see her head dip out of frame. And you just hear, <laughs> it's, it's so loud. It's just so, Bruh! it's so over the top. All I could see was the pilot episode of Gravity Falls with the gnome puking up the rainbow. <laughs> so there's this rainbow flooding down behind this car door. That, that's better than the one that made me laugh is when she sits up bolt upright in bed. She was shot in the head. I'm like, I don't know why that made me laugh. <laughs> it's that's another one where it's it's just this really sudden the way they do this, and it's supposed to be like, all right, we're gonna go from zero to sixty. You know, Margot Kidder sitting up and and screaming and stuff, and it'll be this very jarring. And that's another one too. Is same, uh, screaming would have been fine, but her she was shot in the head. I'm like, what the fuck was that? It just yeah, it didn't quite click, but it made me laugh. There was one thing in this that triggered me and, and scared me mm. was the babysitter's headgear. Because <laughs> I used to have to wear that headgear. She rolled out with that. Oh, and was did like, you? Oh, fuck no. <laughs> like, that was that was too much. I almost had to turn the movie off and walk around for a little while. It was the exact headgear, too. That you plug it in the sides and, oh, yeah, didn't care for that. That sequence, I thought, worked very pretty yeah, well, that was actually, pretty good. with her being trapped in the closet, because that was... The, the only problem with that is her hands get bloody way too fast. But otherwise, yes, it's well done. Yeah, it's, so there is some stuff, like... When I think Stuart Rosenberg, I don't think of him as kind of the most visually driven filmmaker, but there are a lot of really fun visual shots in the film, and particularly in terms of like how they position the house and frames and how they'll always like shoot like through the banister, like when the Lutzes are first touring and the camera is on. It's not like through the window. It's through what is essentially the layer of teeth underneath, you know, that that railing and it's it's shooting through the bars of the railing. 
it's a similar bit with the scene where the babysitter gets stuck because they're shooting it through the slots of the, you know, the back of the rocking chair that's in there where Jody sits, presumably. But then it cuts to like this handheld shot as it closes in and the door shuts. And, you know, the way the babysitter sold it when she comes out and she's hysterical and, you know, Amy's reaction, you know, Jody wouldn't let me. It was, was I thought that was one of the better played sequences and ends. I thought on an amusing note, too, with Amy having the you know, this very matter of fact, Jody doesn't like George and then looks at this babysitter and who's <laughs> you know, sitting there with bloody fingers who was screaming for her life for hours you know, minutes ago. And Amy just gives her this <laughs> like smiling <laughs> to this person who she just traumatized. So, yeah, there were a couple of things that made me laugh. But as far as the overall film as a whole, so what it, what it felt like to me is the only Stuart Rosenberg film I had seen before this was cool. I'd seen cool hand loop and really, really liked it. I'd been meaning for years to see a couple of his other movies, main one being the laughing policeman, because like I mentioned, I'm a huge fan of Charlie Varick and I'm a huge fan of the taking of Pelham one, two, three. So if it's a seventies crime movie with Walter Matthau, I tend to fucking love it. So I did watch the laughing policeman today before we recorded. And I thought that film was really, really good. And it was kind of an example of kind of a lot of things that that movie is very much in the shadow of the French connection where versus this movie's being in the shadow of the exorcist. That movie's much closer to French French connection was 71 and laughing policeman, I think was 73, but both of you guys have seen cool hand Luke, right? Oh yeah. One of my all time favorites. I don't know. Okay. Oh Jesus Christ. But <laughs> don't worry about spoilers. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm not worried about spoilers. Just talk. so what we have here is a failure to communicate. I know that scene. That's Cool Hand Luke. Just from seeing Cool Hand Luke and then seeing this, what it felt like to me is Rosenberg's interests as a director, where he's someone who is very, very interested in actors. And he's very, very interested in characters. And he's very, very interested in giving his actors interesting material, working with them. And because a lot of the actors who worked with him after Stewart's passing had glowing things to say about it. Oh, I've also seen Pope of Greenwich Village. I, it's been years since I've seen it, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed that movie. Very good movie. But all the, both that and Cool Hand Luke are movies where people give these you know, really impressive performances. And it feels like the actors really had room to breathe and, and really room to stretch and make something. And this movie felt like it had the same initial sensibilities where the the part of the movie that, and this could be projecting because it could just be me projecting the bits of the movie I like, but I thought the portion of the movie of the Lutz as a family, and specifically the Lutzes as a couple, I thought was really good. I thought James Brolin and Margot Kidder were both terrific. And I loved their dynamic. And just the way they played the characters and the way they played off each other, mm -hmm. it was, like I said, the, the script wasn't really, you know, their dialogue, it wasn't really anything special, but it felt like they really had room to breathe. And really, when you, you compare the script against the finished film, most of the tweaks are just like small dialogue tweaks. So it felt like a lot of, you know, well, I can I say it this way instead of this or little things like that. There was more about the charbroiled hot dogs in the script. I'm upset we lost hot dog lore in there. <laughs> so it, it felt like just the stuff with the Lutzes and working with the actors, like the Lutzes were great and felt like they had a lot of room to breathe. Conversely, it felt like the same thing applied to Rod Steiger. Mm -hmm. yep. And Rod Steiger is, you know, I'm top four, he's a phenomenal performer. Jake brought up the pawnbroker. He's absolutely fantastic in that. But 
whereas the the Lutzes, you know, James Brolin, Margot Kidder felt, I thought, very organic and just had a really fun dynamic with each other. Then you have Rod Steiger, who is swinging for the fucking fences. Yeah, he is. <laughs> and, and to such a degree that it it feels disconnected from the Lutz portion, and he's physically disconnected. Like they never interact yep. aside from attempted phone calls. He's definitely got a little of Jack Nicholson and the Departed disease in this. Uh, I think even Where you're just you're just in an entirely different movie than everybody else. Even more so, <laughs> I I think like it, Steiger. I think he made a choice and thought this was going to be him. If I play this, you know, to the the very back of the auditorium and play it to the hilt, then it'll heighten the horror and it'll it'll heighten it and it'll be this counterpoint to this kind of intimate down to earth family element and instead it just feels like it's completely fucking different film i'll say this much while it might take away from the film or be disjointed from the film it makes him stand out solid so like oh you won't forget his performance <laughs> no no he he did himself all the favors oh lord i pray <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> it's so it was funny like the element of the film I, i'm kind of with you nick in terms of i really liked the george stuff in this i thought the the stuff i thought about the movie that worked was i thought the elements of sh actually having a really kind of intimate portrayal of a family and one person's descent into madness yep i thought was really effective and i actually thought james brolin was terrific and, yes. and did a good job with it but it it makes the Steiger stuff every time it cuts to Steiger and he's doing the, you know, like he's choking or, you know, the, the boils on his hand or all this stuff. And it's just like, it's like this. Again, it feels like the movie shooting itself in the foot, which is like, I, I know what you're trying to do. It doesn't feel like you're getting there. And it feels like you, in making the attempt, it's just detracting from the stuff that's actually working. You have some people have such an authentic performance, I think, with, you know, Margot Kidder and James Rowan, which is funny because Margot Kidder <laughs> apparently did not give two shits about this movie to hear her talk about it in an interview. She was like, oh, yeah, I'd done Superman, you know, it was a big money part. And, and you know, it's, it's, you know, the whole thing, it's one for you, one for them, you know, it's, it's hard. Yeah. I mean, she didn't say like the movie's dog shit, but she was like, yeah, I didn't take it very seriously. I was just having a good time. And Rod Steiger got really pissed at me because he was taking super seriously. And so it's funny that it's emblematic. And the person who was, like the you know the least obsessed with giving you know like this you know, really immersing himself in in the performance and i think she's in in the end result is you know, miles more interesting than yeah someone oh, yeah. like rod steiger yep because i do i think margot kidders there's some stuff where like jake mentioned her sitting upright in bed where it's it doesn't click or feels overblown but that feels more like again it's them trying to go for something and it not clicking rather than a bad choice on her part but i, I think she's very good in it and plays a lot of it. I, I think she's the best part of the film, and not just you know, <laughs> joke aside. I think she's the the best part. You know, it's funny to, to just to, to talk about Rod Steiger or just one one more. So, like I mentioned, my my father showed us the Pawnbroker, and one of the things my father did growing up was he showed us a lot of classic films. You know that he considered like you know the the foundation of cinema and this and that. You know, just but a lot of them were Rod Steiger films because you know on the waterfront, Pawnbroker. Um, Heat of the Night. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he won the Oscar for that. Yep. Yep. Dr. Zhivago. Yep. You know, and all these movies. And the one he didn't show us was the one, you know, that took place at the neighbor's house. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to get off topic real quick here for a second. Us? Off topic? It was interesting watching this 
again and comparing my reaction to when I saw it when I was younger. So, like, I saw it, I don't know how young, but, you know, probably preteen, honestly. And back then, I, I have a, a fairly strong recollection of, yay, happy ending. They all survived. Which is funny because as an adult, I'm like, wow, this ending is actually bleak as hell. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, let's go through where we leave everyone at the end of the film. So the Lutz family has just fled their home. His business is in shambles. They've left all their stuff behind. They have no money. And they're just, all they basically have is the car. That's like the only thing they really have to their name at this point. Mm -hmm. And maybe they can salvage. Not even the, yeah, not even presumably the business that's tied to yeah. the van. Yeah. The surveying business, because that is, right. is, is gone down the toilet. And the father has to live with the knowledge that the dog is the true hero. <laughs> yeah. but, so the family screwed. The priest, Rod Steiger, blind and just kind of left alone depressed in the park unsupported by his church knowing that evil is real in the world and he can do jack shit about it his mentee no longer has a mentor then we have the cop who's like just catching on that there's something deeper here who will never get the answers he wants nope. <laughs> no one wins in this film there are no winners there's just what is the leftover wreckage of this encounter it's like damn, this hits different now that I can see it better. <laughs> and it's interesting, like, the stuff with them, and it, I'm just going off memory here, so apologies if I'm misremembering, but from what I remember, it was mentioned in the documentaries that, like, initially, when they left the house, purportedly, the Lutz's claim, when they left the house and went to a family member's place, like, the, the hauntings, like, followed them, from what I remember. Like, I thought it was, like, the stairs leading, or something happened when they got somewhere else. And it's, and it was funny to me because it was like, well, that makes much for a much more like just normal, but interesting horror movie ending where it's like, Oh, thank God we got out. And then, Oh, nope. <laughs> you know, it's like, we'll all start to bleed or something. Cause what was haunted was the raggedy Ann doll, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was Annabelle. <laughs> Jody makes a friend. She makes a, a friend for life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was one of those things. Like there's a lot of bits of this movie. He's talking about Jody where it was, you know, this was like all right this isn't scare me now but if i saw this as a kid i'm sure it would have really terrified me but mm -hmm. it's just like the, the jody bit with the, the what is purportedly jody because it's in amy's window the pig demon with red eyes which the, the lutz kid says exactly that he says in the miami Dadeville horror documentary he said it looked like a cartoon pig with with big teeth and he said it's like yeah that shit don't work even it's even when this movie <laughs> came out that that now nah. uh, but it's interesting you mentioned all the bad stuff that happens to delaney because Kind of the main changes from the script, aside from the hot dog sequence, there was originally a different introduction for Father Delaney. He showed up before he shows up at the house. It, originally, right after the realtor leaves the house, it cuts to a girl who's crying and her brother who's lying on the ground, looks like he's you know unconscious or dead. And Father Delaney's there and he's in jogging outfit with Father um, Bolden, Bolin, sorry, and trying to resuscitate him. Because the kid, it turns out, went up into a tree because there was a kite stuck up there and the kid got caught in a telephone line and got electrocuted. And so Father Delaney's trying to resuscitate this kid and he does. And, you know, the kid starts breathing again. Cops show up and the cops are, oh, thank God you were here. You know, oh, we'll help these kids out. And then having resuscitated the kid, the, the trauma of what he just saw and this kid nearly dying hits him. And all of a sudden his hand starts to shake. 
And he starts to get these tremors because, holy shit, this kid almost just died on me. And Father Boland sees that and he says, you okay? Do you need to go rest or something? And Delaney says, no, 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 I got to get to Amityville. I got a thing I got to do. So it, it's probably a good cut because it, it, it gives Steiger this really dramatic reveal of the door opening and, he, and him in close up when he shows up. But but it does lend more credence to why Bolin would think that this was trauma on Delaney's part and wasn't something supernatural. So, But th- that part is like, like, yeah, I could take it or leave it. The bit I wish they kept was at the opposite end when we leave Delaney. The finished film, it leaves it kind of vague on Delaney's like whether or not he's like borderline almost catatonic mm-hmm. because he doesn't respond to anything Father Boland says. So you don't know if that's, you know, absolutely shut down or what pissed <laughs> in the script. He, he has one line where, where father Bolin, he says, you know, I think it's the, the lunch line. He says, do we bring our lunch here? And he says, I think I want to be left alone. Father. He says something like one line of dialogue to show that, you know, he, he can still, he's, he's still, still processing what's going on, but he's, he's very haunted. And then the scene plays out as it does in the finished film with Bolin talking to the cop and saying, you know, Oh, I guess I'm just chasing shadows or whatever. But then the camera was supposed to do this, big push in on Delaney sitting by himself on this bench and as the camera keeps getting closer and closer you see there's a fly buzzing around him and the fly lands right on his ear and then crawls to the inside of his ear and then just starts buzzing and it said that they would basically like the sound of a fly buzzing but they would amplify it and put echo on it so it's just the sound of this fly reverberating in his brain Oh. And like that's the last is just this the sound of the flies wings. It was like I, oh. ah, oh, I kind of wish that it had still been in. But yeah, aside from that, not too much that was different. Everything else was some stuff was slightly rearranged. But and like I said, dialogue towards better. Aside from that, it was pretty much the same. But yeah, I, the other thing I think is interesting is so they said the movie was a big success, but I guess when it came out, it was kind of lambasted. I guess in in some corners, and like I said, even day reactions for it are kind of all over over the map and there are a lot of folks who don't like it say it's boring say it's stupid and I, one of the things i saw was the stephen king take on it where stephen king i guess when the movie came out he initially he derided it and then changed his perspective on it and then king i don't know where it was but king came back later and said you know actually on seeing this again i think it's fantastic because i think it's this actually the, what the movie is actually about is you know fuck the ghost it's about the economic uncertainty of the era mm-hmm. and you know it's just this small businessman who has money concerns and you know everything that happens is kind of a manifestation of this economic anxiety and you could argue that potentially that that's a bit of a reach but i think i don't think that's far off no. because rosenberg in my experience and i, I feel this even more strongly after seeing now, I, I thought it certainly after seeing Cool Hand Luke and Pope Grand Food, but much more so after seeing The Laughing Policeman. It said, aside from just working with actors, the socioeconomic elements in, in the society of the time was, was very much concerned. Like Laughing Policeman, he goes through and like it's a very, very grounded, like warts and all portrayal of cops. Like Bruce Dern's character in that is openly homophobic and racist. And he's one of the primary characters and, and he shows people from all kinds of different social stratas when they're tracking down this, you know, leads on this case, which I won't give away the finale, but it, like it, it really does this broad social range, particularly when you get to who the culprit of the crime actually is. And there's a lot of stuff involved in that. 
but one thing that was interesting too is looking at the very first line of this film like one thing that struck me on a rewatch where the first two lines which is when the sergeant shows up who's played by val avery and he's talking jake mentioned james tolkien's in this movie plays the coroner it's when they're standing in front of the house after the defeo murders the first line of dialogue is the sergeant saying jesus christ it gets worse all the time and james tolkien's line and it sure as hell doesn't get any better and they're obviously they're watching bodies being carted out but it was one of those and it's like if you look at those two lines in isolation because it was like if if the first line that your movie is a mission statement and your first two lines of dialogue are jesus christ it gets worse all the time and sure as hell doesn't get any better i was like well that you could certainly make the argument that <laughs> that's supporting the case but i felt that more strongly because the line it gets worse all the time comes up twice in laughing policemen one of which is from Val Avery because he's in that as a cop as well. He has the same line. Jesus Christ, it gets worse all the time. And they're always commenting about like their role in the broader social hierarchy. And one of the things I think King mentions is is how you know the money comes up so frequently. You know, it's it, we can't afford the house because money gets lost for the caterer and the anxiety from that, the business failing, all this. So I I I think there is something to that. I don't think. It's it's one of the things you initially see. It was like, oh, it's, you're, you're trying to potentially attribute something grander than this movie's aiming for. But I think Rosenberg is absolutely that kind of director. And like my hypothesis, I couldn't find a lot of Rosenberg talking about this movie. I really want to, because I watched interviews of him talking about Cool Hand Luke, and I thoroughly enjoyed listening to him talk about it. He's really interesting to listen to. You know, he's very thoughtful, and he's also very matter-of-fact. Like, there's a thing on Cool Hand Luke where he's like, there's one part of the movie, and it... And it pisses me off to this day. <laughs> he talked about the one thing he hates, which is he's, as he says, the movie's too pretty. So it's too pretty. I wanted it to be dirtier in certain parts. Too pretty. But I, I do think he was that thoughtful. And I think, like I mentioned, this could be projecting because it could be, well, he was interested in the stuff I like and he didn't wasn't interested in the stuff I didn't like. I don't think it's that simple. But I do think he was legitimately interested in the family dynamic of that central family and the broader social economic implications of the premise as far as how interested he was in the horror elements of it i don't know because it's there's certainly attempts here and he said kind of the main thing that undercuts it for me is the score i think the score is it's way too heavy and there's some stuff i think that would be effective if you stripped the score way down or stripped it out entirely but i don't think it was like completely disinterested in the horror because there's too much effort involved there and it's not a case of what I would guess is a lot of folks would instantly go to is like, well, he's not a horror guy. That doesn't mean shit because William Friedkin wasn't a horror guy and he made, you know, arguably the best goddamn horror movie of all time. So, yeah, it's it's just I so I didn't end up thinking the film was boring, long story short, because I liked the central performances enough. And particularly, I, I felt Roland did have an interesting arc in terms of his portrayal that it kept me engaged and I didn't really feel it drug. I just didn't think it was particularly engaging or great and not scary, but I, I played it like, like this, this has been like my background movie for like a solid week. It was like, Oh, I'll just put it on. But you know, I think there is something to that about the, the sort of late seventies nihilism about a lot of that. And it, you see it in a lot of the films and a lot of movies that are, you know, from that era and certainly well, it's the gas crisis. And you know, there, there's so many economic you know, factors that are just, like, terrorizing every single suburban home. Right. You know, the Thatcherism in, in England and, you know, all of the stuff here with the, you know, cities, you know, white flight and things like that. 
and it does crop up a lot. You know, we tend to look back on the seventies and think, you know, ah, disco and this and that, but there was a strain of sort of hopelessness that ran throughout the entire decade that led to a lot of the excesses, I guess, you know, key parties and shit like that, that you hear about. Hmm. And and this does exemplify that pretty well. I'll, I'll give it that. I just, again, I think it was that good, but I do think it, it <laughs> some of the stuff that it, it's talking about and it's trying to deal with, or at least, that is is an undercurrent through it is, is like you said is i think that's legitimately there on purpose yeah it, it comes through too when george's particularly when george's friend shows up because like the first half you get this bit of george's dickish at points and and you're asking like how much is this is him how much is the house etc and then his business associate shows up and is such a colossal asshole it was like oh okay is this kind of dynamic got it got it got it yeah Circling back to what I said about the ending, too, it was I thought the ending was interesting. I was like, oh, OK, it just kind of stops. And it could have been more interesting if they had done the thing where like the awnings have followed them. The, the one thing I really wanted for the ending that would have gone a long way to fixing the film is they get in the van, they drive off, you know, the camera tilts down. You know, the movie's book ended by the same shots of, you know, the house in the rain, which is another kind of weird thing. The whole like the, the repetition element of it, the fact that George looks exactly like the DeFeo murder and stuff like that. It was like, that doesn't quite work. I, that's probably based yeah. on the real thing, but because I think there are some facial similarities, but it's like, yeah, lots of red hair though. And the other yeah. guy didn't, he think he, because I saw an interview with DeFeo, but it was from like uh, right before he passed away. So, so I'd, I'd have to go back, but so that was another thing that didn't work. But so you have this book ending shot of, you know, pans down to the rain and you hear the storms and there's the text that comes up just as there's text in the opening. I wanted it from there to just, you know, the text goes away, the rain dissolves, and you just see this enormous chess piece. And then this white glove, you know, just picks this chess piece up and shifts it over. And there's, <laughs> there's just, and then you just hear, soon the Lutzes will realize it is I who control all the pawns. And you realize that Creon was behind the whole fucking thing. And this is part of the spooky cinematic universe. <laughs> and it's Creon just, yes, I have the soul. And there's, you didn't see it, but there's been a werecat on the periphery for this entire fucking movie. <laughs> That's what the dog's trying to get in the uh, bricked up. Yeah. yeah. It's, folks, if you haven't listened to our Spookies review, it's two episodes before this. Go back. It's probably going to be a touchstone of ours, at least for a little while. So, you know. Technically, Father Delaney is the werecat. He never sees the other. He main never sees. He's just there on the periphery. Yeah. <laughs> but I like he has his little werecat minion, or something comes up and comes in. Ah, yes, my kitty. Tell me, has the Lutz family been sacrificed to power my ritual? Oh uh, no. Well, how many have been killed? I'm sorry, I couldn't quite hear. Did you say one, <laughs> or, or did you say none, as in zero? You certainly didn't say four, which is the number I was expecting you to say. No, it's it's none. Okay, none. Well, no matter, because at least we have the souls of their friends, Jeff and Carolyn, who were foolish enough to, or they survived too, did they? Okay, well, at least we harvested the soul of the priest. What What do you mean, no? Did you cut his brake lines like I asked you to? Oh, he he's he's blind. Oh, okay. But blind's not dead now, is it? 
you know, I'm trying to bring my undead bride back to life. I don't need eyeballs to sacrifice. I need to sacrifice souls. And he's just getting progressively more and more pissed. There's like you know, that vein in his forehead gets going and there's a dissolve and he's just like clenching his fist. And goes, Please tell me we at least got the dog. <laughs> Define almost. (laughs) (laughs) So you tell me George Lutz left the house, came back (laughs) to get the dog, and okay, everyone, pack it up. Pack it. We're scrapping Project 315. We're calling this a wash. And we're going to relocate to the J estate and we're having plan B's in effect. And like this was the failed, like first go of Smokies. Oh, you're killing me. You're killing me. This was just the first failure. Like, Creon didn't get a damn soul on this go round. He's like, ah, fuck. No, I believe this is true now. This is the spooky cinematic universe. This is now canon. The spooky verse. The spooky verse. The LSBGVHCU, the League of Sinister Basuted Gentlemen of Varying Height Cinematic Universe. <laughs> we have our roster of basuted villains in movies that take parts, which are mostly morticians. Him, yeah, the tall man, which is hence the Varying Heights bit because we have them with the tall man's in there. Yeah, Mr. Dark from, or Montgomery Dark from Mortuary, Mortuary Collection. Collection. Mr. Dark from Something Wicked This Way Comes. We didn't mention him, but Bloodworth from Final Destination counts. We, we need the, we need a, a picture you know like dogs playing poker but, but them playing poker yeah. we we gonna go to the baltimore comic con like look we need a we need a a commission but just hear me out buddy <laughs> <laughs> just brace yourself all right <laughs> look i know it's you're technically maxed out at like two characters but can you cut me a deal on this like it's only seven come on <laughs> the other thing i want to like is like it's, it's like is chess the only thing Creon plays? Like can we get Creon doing like other miscellaneous board games? <laughs> oh, behold my Connect Four move! <laughs> <Yeah>. All according <laughs> to plan. Soon my pawns will realize the true definition of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but only I, Creon, <laughs> only I control when the Papa Magic props the dice. <laughs> But I have a stratego. <laughs> I know where your spy is. This is my other note too. Was I got hung up on Creon? Like maybe he's just a big fan of Chess the musical, and then Creon singing lyrics to One Night in Bangkok, which makes me really want to put a T-shirt on our T-public shirt of just Creon with the, the line, "I get my kicks above the waistline, sunshine." <laughs> there are so many of you, but soon there shall only be Uno. <laughs> <laughs> Creon is totally becoming our unofficial mascot, isn't he? Like I said, Spookies is probably going to end up becoming a seminal episode. <laughs> <laughs> That's fucking Creon. Well, it is the only one of our, our episodes that mentions the, you know, the uh, the first Supreme Court Justice of the United States. Uh, I'm going to back out of this now because I just can't even talk about it. John Jay. <laughs> Well, I have to say, I'm glad I chose this film as the housewarming movie, because despite its eerily mirroring effects in my real life. (laughs) (laughs) 
We're now the fly count is now up to five behind it. No. <laughs> I enjoyed this movie and I was happy to watch it again. I I was glad to sit down and do this. You know, I always like it when we do the you know these all time classic. You know, the touchstone horror films. Excellent. And and this is absolutely a cultural touchstone. Yeah, everybody knows this one. I I have this slight personal connection to it, and yeah, I was I was glad to actually sit down and just watch it. And I, I'm glad we didn't pick this as our franchise because we'd be here until 2018. Oh dear God! <laughs> oh my God! 2038. We have mentioned one of them before. One of them came up in our Faust discussion. <laughs> Because one of them is directed by Tim Vigil. So there's so many. But it, it's funny because it's it's that crossroads of true crime and and you know real ghost stories. It's right here. This is the center of so much of that in our culture. So it's it's you know a good one to have in our lexicon. And again, you know, I'm just glad we could find a movie about a family moving into a house uh that was haunted. I guess one actor I forgot to mention earlier who we were talking about and like familiar faces being in this was Murray Hamilton, his father, Ryan, who I didn't realize was in this. I was like, ah, Father Mayor from Jaws, who presumably shows up whenever there's Amity in the title, because that was you know, <laughs> in, in, in Jaws. Amity means friendship. You know? It's Mayor of Amity. So I, I, I will say I was pleased at you picking this because, like, you know, I keep making the joke with. But there were so many choices I expected you to throw at me for this particular housewarming one that I was just <laughs> going to hate. So I was I was glad we went with this. So I appreciate that, Nick. Honestly, I almost chose Poltergeist. Can't do pol. We got to do both Poltergeists together. <laughs> no, the remake <laughs> is awful. Well, I like the remake, but I've never seen the original. So no, I get it. You're you're you know, there's a problem with you. You're broken. I get it. I respect it, but <laughs> <laughs> but no, it, it's. In the end, this is the one Hannah hadn't seen yet. That was my decider. I was like, okay. Oh, is that what it was? Yeah. <laughs> we'll do a new one. Yeah. I was excited. Like, I, I will talk about anything. So I was up for it. But we were like, like kind of like Jake. I was like, oh, he's going to pick something way worse. Oh, Amityville? Really? Okay. <laughs> Don't worry. The next one I push for will be Deliver Us from Evil. Oh, the, the Scott Derrickson one from, with was that the Eric Bana one? Yep. Ah, oh, okay. oh, wait. I haven't seen that. I have, I think. I think I liked that movie. Because that's got Joel McHale in it. That's why I chose it! (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I gotta give Jake a lowball here. (laughs) Yeah, I I have. I've seen that. I, I wanted to see it for years. And it was just, it never popped up on streaming. So, like, I just, I finally just rented it one night. And I don't even remember if I liked it or not. I think I did. Probably not. (laughs) it doesn't doesn't look awesome but you know it might be it might be good no i i think i liked it but it was too close to like the fallen and i really like the fallen oh that's so good but yeah i'd be happy to do that nick's like shit now i gotta find something else (laughs) (laughs) don't worry all is going according according to plan plan. Mousetrap. <laughs> you know, I was I was glad to finally see this, and yeah, coming out of it, I thought it would make for a fun chat, and it did. So yeah, thank you so much. Maybe maybe instead of doing a franchise this year, we should just do the uh, the, the great seventies horror movies, do Exorcist and Omen and Rosemary's Baby. I think Rosemary's Baby was in seventies, was that late sixties? Uh, that was sixty eight, sixty nine. Yeah, it counts. Well, we can either do an era like the seventies, or 
we can pick like like a scream queen like Linda Blair do like a lot of Linda Blair movies something like that doesn't that have quite a bit of crossover in what we're just Jake's expression right now is going to clue us in as far as how familiar he is with Linda Blair's filmography Well, I mean, I know one movie she was in. There, there's a certain ratio of movies that Jake would be excited to do on this pod versus ones Nick and I would be very excited to do. <laughs> that makes me concerned. That's it. We're doing Hell Night. <laughs> Why must you do this to me? <laughs> oh, according to plan. And we're right back to the eat shit and die podcast. <laughs> So, yeah, this was Amityville. Thank you. <laughs> Nixon is thinking, Jake disliking Amityville is a feature, not a bug. <laughs> <laughs> I, I definitely didn't hate it. I'll, right. I'll say that much. I just, no, it's I didn't, messy. It is messy. Like it. That, that's, that's the thing. If you can get past the messy, there's something worth seeing here. That's our, our uh, pod uh, <laughs> motto, isn't it? <laughs> If you can get past the messy, there's something worth listening to. That's that's debatable. Yeah, but no, I'm glad to have finally sat down and watched it. Next up, Exorcist, which I've never seen. Well, we're definitely going to watch Exorcist. We need to get that out of the way before we watch Amityville (laughs) 2. Yep. I thought it was the David Gordon Green movie, the sequel coming out, that was going to put us on the timetable of that. Turns out, no, it turns out, I really want to do the sequel to this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Because I had seen an article, um, it was Megan Navarro, I think, you know, who's a a fabulous writer who's on the Bloody Disgusting podcast, and she had put up an article, and I didn't even read the article, I just saw the headline, which was, why Amityville 2 is so much better than the boring original, or something like that. Talking about how the Amityville 2 is so much better than the original. Mm. And then I watched it and went, <laughs> 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 Yeah, so hopefully, but I don't know. There's other franchises I want to get to, too, so, but the, that are not as long as the Amityville one. But Jesus Christ. Uh, so much to Does do. Does it even count as a franchise? I mean, it's, just... it's more of a genre. Boy, vey. Yeah, I was looking at all of the ones that are coming out, and it was like the, just the sheer number of them. And it was one of those things, it was like, you know, like I mentioned before in like dealing with mental health stuff and like things you tend to dwell on and get depressed when your depression kicks in. It feels like it was going to be one of those, I'm such a failure, I haven't even directed an Amityville movie yet. <laughs> <laughs> like everybody's done it. There's like 30 or something <laughs> I'm just going to pull up Tubi and think of what a failure I am as I keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. She was in Zapped again. Linda Blair? Linda Blair, yeah. Zapped again. Zapped. Oh, God, Zapped. Jake is skipping over Grotesque, <laughs> Savage Streets, <laughs> Repossessed. But what be the next episode we do? Next episode we do is going to be, if all goes planned, we're going to have a very special guest and be something a bit different for the pod is and really really looking forward to that yeah but yeah this movie was fun to talk about we really hope you've enjoyed listening to it and if you did like what you hear and you want to leave us a review on whatever your preferred pod platform is that'd be great you can find us on social media at scary stuff pod on twitter we're scary stuff podcast on letterboxd and instagram and we're on mastodon as well i think i haven't updated that in a while we're on tumblr as well scary stuff podcast but most of all just thank you so much for listening. We really, really appreciate the support as always. It means a lot to us. For well, this was this was a good time. I enjoyed this. Yeah, 
this was a blast. We hope everyone had a blast listening to it. Hope you had fun. Absolutely. And we'll be back soon with another episode. In the meantime, thanks again. This is Eric signing off. This is Nick saying, get out! Uh, and this is Jake saying, Nick, you might want to look behind you because you got like 40 flies back there now. Ah!